hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. This is Rumble Strip. I'm Erica Heilman. Sometimes I watch fish eating fish, different sizes of fish, and the bigger ones eating the smaller one, bigger ones eating the smaller one. It was on YouTube. Everything I procrastinated on mostly from YouTube. It started with the sardines. Bigger fish, like tuna, come in, and boom, at the end, this this huge whale just scooped everything all together, and all the millions of um, sardines were just gone. It's like the ending you didn't expect. This band is called the Little Tiger Team. Han Meimei used to listen to them as a teenager in the early 90s. The first time I met Han, we were standing on my deck in Vermont. She looked at the fields around my house and she said, That's a lot of fields. Have you ever thought of writing messages to airplanes? I had not. She also suggested to my friend Tobin that he consider installing a drain in his living room and buying all rubber furniture so he could clean the room down with a hose. Han has lots of excellent ideas. She's also a brain scientist. She studies the nature of memory and prediction, and she's one of the smartest people I've ever met. Han grew up in a state-run compound in Guilin in southeast China in the Guangxi province, The compound conducted research and produced electrical equipment, and everyone who worked there lived there and shopped there. The children were educated in schools there. Han was born in 1984, soon after China had decided to open itself to more economic engagement with the outside world. But she was also a second child when second children were not allowed in China. We talked about growing up in China and what she learned about China after she left and why she's chosen to spend her life asking questions that may never be answered in her lifetime. Welcome. There were about, I would say, between 1,000 and 2,000 people total uh, living on the compound. So work and, and living zone, work zones and living zones on the compound, they were just 10 minutes walk apart. You, you walk from home, into, cross the gate, and then you're, you're into the work zone where you just find your office. Everything was together. It was a very, very regular and rigid schedule. Um, every day, exact same time. So it was always like 7.45 in the morning or um, 1.45 in the afternoon. It was a time where there were three songs broadcasted to the whole living zone. Like every apartment can hear it. It's like a loudspeaker broadcasting from the buildings. You'll hear these three songs. They will be play, played for 15 minutes. Like they, they t- The songs are particularly chosen, so when you finish all three of them, it's the exact time for work. Like it was eight or it was two. So usually I knew my schedule by, oh, wait, it's already the second song. Like, you've got to get out the, the door. And then, oh, the, it's near the end of the third song, so you should start running because you'll be late for the school gate. 
One song was played on the 2008 Beijing Olympic. In the opening ceremony, a little girl sang that song, and it's called uh, uh, "Singing, Singing for My Country," something like "For For the Motherland," something like that. It's a, like a very patriotic song uh, about like yeah, uh, we Chinese people just just love our motherland, something like that. And then another one uh, was, "We live in a in the field of hope," something like that. It's like everything. Is hopeful. Everything's restarting, and our future is bright. That that kind of spirit. It, it, it was always something really upbeating. You you need something like that to motivate you to go to work. Everything was consistent within itself. Like the compound is self-contained, the ideology uh, and the, like patriotism, and the history of the new China, the history of the Civil War,、uh, Second World War, all of that. You haven't heard anything outside that system. It's self-contained. It was a very exciting story, so triumphant. This is what you people, like your people, have done this in the past, and this is where we are. And 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 you are part of this people that you should be super proud of. And everything's gonna be better. So, you just like, yeah, so exciting. I want to be part of this.、Um, and then you haven't heard of any different views. Everything is uniformly harmonic. This is perfect. At the time when I was born, the one-child policy was already imposed, and. It all already became strict. It just became more and more serious. So, I was, I was born on in、uh, 1984, and my sister was born in 1978. So, my parents always wanted a second kid. So they they, they decided in in this whole course of these things happening, they made up their mind. They are like. Okay,、uh, we're gonna risk this、uh, because we we really want、uh, this second chance. And before I was born, my dad was dragged into all these meetings where he would have to face all the officers who are in charge of this quota. Like each compound have a quota. How many extra kids you could have in your compound? Otherwise. The, the whole institutes get a fine, get a fine from from some higher levels. So they were really onto this, and then kind of pushed my parents to quit the baby, having an abor- abortion. It was like public shaming. They they would treat you as if you've done something terribly wrong, wrong, and you're losing the the face of your. 
of your unit. Uh, you're losing everybody's face on the compound. Uh, and you're going against a national policy. It's not treason, but they will make it sound like almost as bad as that. Uh, like the penalty fell, eventually fell on my parents was that I think it was 75% of salary was taken out for, for one year, for one year it was taken out of my dad's side and 50% was taken out from my mom's side. And for the following six or seven years, it was some percentage like 10 to 15% cut. Um, yeah, so it was a huge, huge penalty. Like my, my grandma had provided us financial aid from her retirement salary to, uh, to help us. So all the way to the day I was born, they still wanted me to, to be gone. The meetings never ended and they never gave up um, threatening my parents. So, so my mom heard this rumor uh, that at the time, if you go to those legitimate big hospitals, there are people like holding needles just to secretly inject in you so the baby would be born still. It was never demonstrated to be true or not, like no, nobody knows. But my mom was very scared. She was like, uh, we, we are on their radar and I don't wanna go to the ho like a big hospital and then take that risk. So my parents, they just went to uh, the clinic of a nearby village and my mom had her delivery and she said that the place was so primitive, they didn't have a, they didn't have a scale. So my mom was complaining like, ah, how come they didn't have a scale? So we never, we would never know how, how much you weigh when you, you were born. You're such a fat baby. I suspect you're eight pounds. Uh, you are probably like the fattest baby in, in the city, but we'll never figure out. Yeah, that, that's her complaint. Yeah, so it was kind of secretive. They didn't want to make a big deal. So uh, my dad had some buddy buddies um, who lent, it's like a cart. It's like those three wheel bicycles. So you can have people sit in the back uh, as like a cart and another person just paddle in the front. So they borrowed one of those and went to the hospital and then back. The same night, they, they came back home. So the early memories of like being treated somewhat differently as, as the sort of an extra kid, everyone was so nice to me and everyone had very high expectation of me. When I watched uh, Harry Potter, the first, the first in the series when, when Harry just arrived at Hogwarts and he was like this uh, nobody and kind of bullied boy in real life. Then he, he went to this magic world and everyone was like, oh, you have this scar, your parents are so famous, like, you're the boy, you're the boy. Like, that was like a little reminiscent. It was like, I went to kindergarten and I went to elementary school 
And everyone's like, that's a kid, that's a kid. And uh, everywhere I go, I was expected by everybody to be the best kid uh, in the whole compound. I should be the model kid. But I don't know why, but I should be, be the one. Why, why? Why? Why do you think that I would never have assumed? I knew that it, you would be treated differently in some way, but it could have been the opposite. Right. It could have been that you were shunned. And so why do you think it came down that way? So, so they, they treat me so nicely because everyone was not happy with the, the policy. So they wanted to believe that I would be worthy as a, for their choice. I think for them, for, for people who, who, who are watching us, it's like you're cheering for your favorite sports team and you want them to win so that you're, you feel you're supporting the right people. If they saw both my sister and I uh, were doing well, I think that they, they were like, well, you don't want them to have more children, but look how wonderful those children can grow out to be. So you're wrong. You're wrong about n- not letting people have more children. Um, I wasn't paying much attention to outside of China until I was much older. We reconnected with my uh, uncle who moved to Taiwan. He did bring in a lot of fresh ideas, not so much as political, but more like what the outside world is like. What does the what does capitalism can bring you? Yeah, that's like very direct. Uh, materialistic uh, examples of an outside world was first, I think, introduced by my uncle. Because at the time, like Taiwan was, they they had much higher life standard already than us. Um, And I I saw everything on them was very unfamiliar. Everything on them comes from the future. Like all the songs about (laughs) we're so hopeful uh, is that we're so hopeful to become them. Like, they wear the clothes that I've, I've ne- never seen. Like, I remember it was just so cool to, to see he, he dressed in this very high quality, probably waterproof jacket for the winter. For winter, we have to put on like a million layers. I have to like have sweaters, have uh, like a cotton uh, filled uh, big jacket. They were just very bulky and ugly looking um, clothes. But this one my uncle was wearing, it had, it had a style. Like I, I got a sense of, oh, that was a style. It just, uh, having all those functionality with these, these structures, it was like, whoa, I wish I could have a pocket at that place on your, on your jacket. And so I, I, think, I think for me, thinking of uh, the outside world, it's just a wealthy, uh, better developed place where we're headed toward. Especially America, I, I remembered my aunt, my, my uncle's wife took my cousin to America for some like tourist trip. It was like Easter time. So they brought back gifts for us. So for me, I got uh, like a giant rabbit chocolate. I was like, you can have a chocolate shaped into a rabbit and of this size. It's like chocolate for us is too exotic. We never got to eat them because 
if, if the gift came uh, with chocolate, definitely those are the ones you gotta save to give out again. You, you are just too poor. Like, like when you don't have many, many, much money, you don't wanna buy everybody gifts, right? You wanna recycle the gifts everyone gives you. So then <laughs> you wanna keep the good ones so you, you don't lose face when, when you give it out as like a return. So you always keep the best ones uh, for giving, giving out and then you, you uh, keep the crappy ones. So then when I got that uh, rabbit, that chocolate rabbit, it was like a palm size, it's a huge one. It's like a hand size, like a palm size. Yeah, I just kept it for a month. I just nibble on it, just one nip every day. I got, yeah, I ate it for a month. And that was like <laughs> the image of America. The first image of America of mine uh, is a chocolate rabbit. I mean, I mean, at the same time, you kept, it's a very mixed propaganda. It can't be always put together. You see all this wonderful stuff and you thought, oh, we're, we're heading to one. But then in the school, we're taught um, that system is bad, right? You don't want a capitalism. You want a socialism style of free markets. So we, we, we want to build something better than that, even though we haven't gotten there yet. So at the same time, it's like, I want to have those things, but at the same time, I was thinking, I, I gotta be cautious. I cannot put myself to, to just pursue that. I, I didn't really know what the real purpose to be like doing well in school and you are heading towards some goal, like some very vague goal to like build, build a good life. That life will be materially catching up with the outside world but you would not want to corrupt yourself to become them. But what you want to become is not very clear. I was very heavily shaped by this cultural value system. I do think the history is a very important factor. Like history was taught extensively and, and pretty well in school. So we knew the major things that happened from like 5,000 years ago to now in China on that, on that land. So that whole background does give you a sense of like you're not alone. Like you, you're part of these people that existed for, for 5,000 years. It's like you are not born as this person as right now are just you, but you know um, ancestors of ancestors of ancestors, part of your lineage already existed on here for, for a very long time. And now you, are join you just joined the party, you're part of them and you are a continuum. You are here to carry it on. That at the time was a very strong sense of something bigger than you. And it's transcendent through time. Like, it's like, oh, we, we lasted forever. We never discontinued. That's like an implicit comforting factor. Because, uh, yeah, you are part of these people that existed forever. I, I do think that, that that is a very commonly shared perspective among Chinese. And is that something you still feel? 
Um, not as strongly. Now I'm more like an indifferent, mid-aged, grumpy lady that <laughs> not impressive by the, not impressed by the collectivism. But but I'd, that was all I had, and it was consistent in, in that self-contained world, and I embraced it. Um, I mean, I'm not like saying that idea is is bad. But I don't think that's adequate as a purpose of life. So probably I was like 14, 15, and I was trying to think about why are we here? Like, what's the whole purpose of existence? The meaning of life? The, the very big questions? I, I've always wanted to know how, how you define a human, how you define life, or more generally, not why we exist, but like, who are we as humans? I, I think those, those fundamental questions always interest me. I got into a, a biology programming uh, as an undergrad, but then, um, like, everything taught that tries to tell you what is life everything hits this hard rock. Like you are this organism, you carry the genes, genes replicate themselves, so you replicate yourself, so you are alive. And then you know from the very bottom how the molecules, one turn into another to build up your body, like how digestion works. Okay, fascinating, everything explained. But when you try to explain how you go from assembling the proteins into a into a behaving human like there's a huge gap there and people are lacking ideas to bridge it up and i just found that part very very unsatisfactory i was like you didn't really answer the question and now i suddenly realized i cannot understand what is life without knowing what is consciousness So I want to find a place to study the brain. So I found out about the theory of complexity, which tries to get at the problem that can tell us how a system with a million different parts can self-organize and evolve faster than random mutations into a more and more organized whole. And the whole is bigger than the sum of its parts. And I just looked up online of all the institutions that has complex systems in their titles and found one and applied. Then I ended up going there to the U.S. Then I was in Florida. The temperature inside was set to 70 Fahrenheit every day, constant. And... From the time when I left China, China was dirtier than nowadays. And that, that difference, the, the difference in, in hygiene between the two countries, I was just amazed at how clean and everything smells like detergent. Um, all the fruits, just too sweet. Like apples. Apples were not sour at all. Like apples are too sweet. It's very suspicious. I was like, these things taste artificial. Um, everything here 
is sterile. People don't have to like scrub their grocery before eating it. And you, you don't have to die from that. And then directly drink water from the, from the tap. That's unimaginable. In China, when I was in college, I hand wash my clothes every day and then I change them. So I have maybe three outfits and I cycle them through the weeks by hand washing every day. But here, the first thing I learned is that even though you accumulate a week's worth of laundry to, to, to do it once, you have to appear clean and refreshed every day by wearing different clothes. And I found, I found that it's really inconvenient. Wishing I was fishing in Boca Raton. OJ playing croquet in Boca Raton. It took me many, many years to have a sense of what are the Americans. In my first three years, my cultural sense is so numb. It was just a total strange land of everything became a project to learn. First time I walked into a Starbucks here, I was so confused. Like, why you have so many options on the menu? Like, who needs so that many options? Just say coffee. And, then, and so I can just walk in and say, give me coffee, and then I'll get coffee. Like in a Chinese restaurant, you would not get so many options for a drink. Why bother having a store selling 15 different flavors? Just sell three so people always come to you for those three. That, that was the concept. But then I went to the Starbucks, and those people were like, what do you want? I was like, um, a, a coffee? And then they're like, what size? And then I said, like, small. And they say tall. And I was like, small? Like, tall doesn't sound like small? Like, it was super confusing. And, and, then, and then they said, like, uh, cream and sugar. And I said, no, just coffee. There's another example. is when people always come up and say, hey, how are you? And I hated that. I still hate that to this day. I hate it forever. Like, why do you ask me this question? Why can't you just say hi? And I say hi. That's how people greet each other everywhere else, right? But then you give me a question, and I'm this stranger in this, this world. I don't know you. I don't know anything. And you, you ask me how I am. And then I have to come up with sentences in English and then tell you stories and I just, I'm not capable. To make it easier for everyone, including the newcomers, we should stop asking how are you and just say hi. It was my first year uh, as a grad student in the US. I just arrived in the fall. Uh, it was like the fall of 2006. Like, I, I had nowhere to go at night. Um, so I usually stay in the office until very late and just came home to sleep. So, so I was just on the computer the whole time, like digging around on the internet and then going from, like, just like chasing down a rabbit hole. And then I saw the documentaries of the Tiananmen Square, the, the 89, uh, the student movement. And they, they, they had some mm, very close shot with, with the people, like how they discuss and how the things get, got escalated and, and what happened. And um, 
is very different from what I usually can get in China. So I was alarmed. My education, my experience, all the things when you thought it's organic. It's like you thought everybody was just growing up. Um, they have limited information, not because someone's trying to cover them up, but you just like nobody knows everything everywhere in the world. But this is different. This is like some things are covered up because they don't want you to know, and then then you then you don't know what is real. It was a strong feeling of betrayal. The certainty that you felt as a child? No, I don't think I miss that certainty. I also don't miss the feeling of belonging, because that feeling is always mixed with what you belong to, and I don't like the thing I thought I was I, I belong to. I feel I'm undefined right now. It's in a little bit outsider, and also a little bit. Like calming down from from the anxiety of feeling like expelled, I'm fine being myself by not being part of something. That's calming. That that's like um, that's the benefit to be in between cultures. So if your life's work is to Figure out how a human comes to be in all of its complexity. What, what if you can't find the answers, or what if the answers are not found in your lifetime? So, if I think doing science is the comfort for life, to have my own answer for the meaning of life, then if I know that science would not give me an answer in my lifetime, then why bother? But I. I think the meaning is not in the answer, but it's in the doing science itself. Why do we need to know what the universe is at all? Like, why do you need to know what is humans? Like, why is knowing who we are so meaningful? There's no meaning of it. But I decided knowing the answers to these questions are the most worthy of my time. This is how I want to spend my time. That was Han Mei Mei, but that's actually not her real name. A lot of what she said about China would be considered sensitive and censorable, and she wanted to protect her privacy. The music for this show, I cannot read or pronounce, so I asked Han to record the credits on her phone, and here they are. Xiaohu 十年水流西 If you have a comment, we would love to hear from you. Just go to the show page at rumblestripvermont.com and scroll to the bottom and you'll see a comment box. To make a donation to the show, that would be excellent. That is how I 
keep making this show. Rumblestrip is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, an independent podcast collective. You can learn more about all our shows at hubspokeaudio.org. This is Rumblestrip. I'm Erica Heilman. Thanks a lot for listening. Oh,